Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Most of us have heard about Moby Dick, the huge ship-smashing whale that Captain Ahab was desperate to catch. The book about this fantastical menace has earned a reputation as one of the great American novels. Published in 1851, it's even been called the greatest book of the sea ever written. Now, whether you agree with that assessment or not, the book's popularity makes it very clear that we have a fascination with creatures of the deep, including gigantic whales. But giant whales, you see, aren't just a thing of fiction, and they've been around for a lot longer than good old Moby Dick. Whales haven't always been as well understood as they are now. For many in the Middle Ages, a whale was essentially just a sea monster. It was seen as something vicious that was to be avoided if at all possible. In the 6th century, the seafarers of Constantinople were dealing with their own monster of a whale. And just like Moby Dick, he was causing a bit of a problem for sailors. And really, that makes sense. No one had been able to study them or their personalities much at this point in history. Instead of scientific reports about their migration patterns, sailors shared stories about unfortunate deckhands being swallowed up by these huge creatures. Their logical conclusion was that anything that big and with that many teeth had to be a man-eating monster. The specific whale in question that was giving the Byzantines a runaround was named Porphyrius. We can't know for sure, but it's suspected that he was either a sperm whale or a very, very large orca. Measuring 45 feet long and 15 feet wide, he was absolutely massive. Unfortunately, he wasn't a friendly giant. Most of what we know about Porphyrius comes from the 6th century Byzantine historian Procopius. He wrote about Porphyrius's exploits in two of his books, and in both of them, the giant whale was something to fear. Porphyrius was a terror. He had a penchant for destroying ships, and he didn't discriminate. We have stories going back hundreds of years about whales attacking whaling ships. But Porphyrius, he didn't target whalers. He targeted everyone. Fishing vessels, merchant ships, warships, they were all at risk of being smashed by Porphyrius. His selection process seemed to be completely random, too, and that utterly terrified the sailors of the day. They were all afraid that he would choose to go after them next. Porphyrius was usually seen swimming through the Bosphorus Strait, which connects the Black Sea to the Sea of Marmara. It was such a strategically important strait that it actually played a part in where Constantine decided to establish the capital of Constantinople. The strait was wildly important, but it also wasn't very big. The tight squeeze meant that there weren't many places these ships could sail to escape the whale's wrath. So they started to avoid sailing in the area where Porphyrius lurked, which, of course, led to long detours and late shipments. Aside from the logistical nightmare, the whale was hurting the economy. Ships bringing in imports and supplies had a fair chance of being obliterated, which also meant that those shipments were lost whenever it happened. The whale's attacks also had an impact on their military, since more and more soldiers were being killed at sea by the whale. The fear, the deaths, and the immense property damage became such an issue that Emperor Justinian actually put out a bounty on the whale's head. No one ever cashed it in, though. Everyone was too scared to get close. And the craziest part of the story? This behemoth of a whale 
ended up terrorizing the seas of Constantinople for 50 years. He likely would have thrived many more years, too, if he didn't make a fatal error. According to Procopius, the whale was beached one day after chasing dolphins a little too close to the shore. His gigantic body couldn't roll itself back into the surf, so the locals found him thrashing there, completely at their mercy. I'm sad to say that Porphyrius did not have a happy ending. The Byzantines, ready to take revenge for 50 years of terror, brought their weapons to meet him on the beach. After his death, the seas were once again safe. But Porphyrius has not been forgotten. To this day, the records of his exploits are the earliest ones we have about whales attacking humans. He's even mentioned in Moby Dick. And this legacy is oddly present even today. Recently, stories of whale attacks have been on the rise. News reports about orcas banding together to go after boats have been all over our screens, and it's safe to assume that these stories will be around for quite a while. In a classic tale of man versus nature, some whales are still carrying out Porphyrius's mission. Will they keep it up for as long as he did, though? Only time will tell. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. In 1833, a trio of brothers from Manchester, Connecticut, saw the future, and it was lined in silk. Ward, Rush, and Frank Cheney began growing mulberry trees, the perfect meal for their meal ticket of choice, the silkworm. Their goal was to cultivate silk domestically in order to siphon business away from overseas companies, and it looked like they had made a wise investment. At first, the price of mulberry trees grew by almost 800% from 1834 to 1836. And their tiny farm uh, blossomed into several full-blown factories across two more states. Unfortunately, as time wore on, it looked as though the Cheneys had gone barking up the wrong tree because their mulberry inventory started dying and investors began looking elsewhere. Luckily, the brothers, Ward, Frank, and Rush, had not been caught out on a limb. They saw the market's downfall in time and pivoted from the production of silk to the processing of the material instead. They opened a new plant with their other brother, Ralph, and a man named Edwin Arnold in 1838, which bloomed over the next 22 years into a 600-worker-strong silk processing powerhouse. And that growth continued into the early 20th century. 
silk became a highly coveted commodity in America thanks to Cheney Silks. At its height, the company employed a whopping 4,500 workers in its factories. Sadly, just as had happened in the 1830s, the silk economy was about to go bust. The Great Depression brought a halt to the production of luxury textiles, especially silk, and the company scrambled to save itself. Between 1929 and 1933, Cheney Silks sold off as much property as it could to stay afloat. But it wasn't enough. It filed for bankruptcy protection in 1935. But then something happened a few years later. The company got a second chance. It teamed up with DuPont and the United States Air Force in 1938 to help with the war effort. The goal was to bring to market a brand new kind of parachute, and to do that, a new subsidiary was formed called Pioneer Parachute Company. Now, Cheney Silks had aided in the manufacture of parachutes before by providing silk to different companies, but now Pioneer was doing it all on their own. And to accommodate the military's generous order, it could no longer rely on expensive fabrics such as silk. Instead, it turned to synthetic materials, like DuPont's brand new invention, nylon, which was strong and easy to sew into predetermined patterns. The product had originally been intended to make stockings, but with the war growing overseas, Pioneer began testing the fabric's viability in parachutes. It used unmanned payloads at first to measure the rate of descent and any damage that might be incurred upon landing. Although, in order to verify how it handled on a real jump, a true parachutist would have to strap in and take a leap of faith. So the company continued to hone its design over the next few years, until 1942, when 24-year-old Adeline Gray from Oxford, Connecticut, was enlisted to test its latest chute. Gray had been jumping since she was 19 and was working at DuPont as a parachute rigger and packer. On June 6th of 1942, she not only became the first person to use a nylon parachute, she became the first woman to do so as well. She leapt from a height of 2,500 feet before an audience of reporters and military officials. And it was a success. The United States military placed a massive order for nylon parachutes, which were used to safely airdrop supplies into hard-to-reach territories during World War II. Plus, the new parachutes also helped American soldiers land at Normandy on June 6th of 1944, exactly two years after Adeline Gray's successful test. On that day, Private Robert C. Hillman donned his own nylon parachute and jumped out of a C-47 Skytrain over France. He was one of the tens of thousands of Allied soldiers who were responsible for D-Day's success. From Hillman to DuPont's engineers to Adeline Gray and all the way back to the Cheney brothers, it's possible that we might not have won the war without the nylon parachute. But Private Hillman had one specific person to thank for his role that day. You see, he was carrying a special parachute with a woman's initials on it. When asked by an NBC war correspondent riding in the plane with him why he was so sure about his upcoming jump, because my mother works for the Pioneer Parachute Company, Hillman replied, and her initials are on my chute. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.